I don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It's coming on! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio, joined as always by the 42's Murray Kinsella. How are you, Murray? Yeah, I'm great. How are things? Super, thank you very much. And Bernard Jackman is in studio as well, donning a surgical mask. How are you, Bernard? <laughs> very good, thank you. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple of things just to touch upon before we get into the main portion of our chat, which I think will be about television rights and a couple of things about the under 20s and underage rugby as well with some very good questions and emails from you guys um it looks as though from this juncture as we record at around 10 what is it 10 30 half 10 on a thursday that italy england has been postponed certainly all of the reports in the british media would suggest as much and you would have heard obviously that last night wednesday the italian government issued a directive putting all Italian sport behind closed doors. So we'll start with a very pertinent question, actually, from Robin Dempsey in the 42 members WhatsApp group. Uh, Obviously, the ongoing effects of COVID-19 on the sporting calendar will be discussed. There have been Six Nations games postponed, Italian football played behind closed doors. Formula One has been affected, even players self-isolating in an effort to contain the virus. Asia has clearly been the worst affected with school closures and so on, and even talk of postponing the Olympics. With all of this in mind, has there been any word on the fate of this year's Koh Samui Cup? Hashtag <laughs> horseplay. <laughs> we'll get the horseplay out of the way, right? Richard Bonham has a question as well. If you had to be quarantined for two weeks with any rugby player, who would it be? I reckon you could record a very decent hip hop album with Simon Zebo in two weeks. The question would be, what would you do with the second week? Yeah, some of the French rugby players would be great crack, I think. Good stories, good yeah. approach to life, laissez-faire attitude towards things. I don't know, Freddie Mishlak or something like that. Mishlak would be decent. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. you've probably been essentially yeah, quarantined no, with many a rugby yeah. player. I have, I've done that. I've done that part of my life. Uh, <laughs> no, it was good, but um, I'm trying to be more mature now. And, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, hanging around with rugby players for a week um, isn't always the most uh, adult-like uh, way of spending a week. So, no, it's done. Done and dusted. Fair. Fair. A serious enough question then from Eric Fitzgerald before we move on from coronavirus-related topics. Is the global rugby season in danger of collapse given the rate at which the virus is spreading? We can't be far off games in the Champions Cup Pro 14 and Top 14 being cancelled. Yeah, we just don't know this is the simple answer to that. You would have those fears, certainly. Um, and even the Pro 14 have taken the measure of obviously announcing that if a game is is called off for this reason it'll be a nil all draw which seems sensible because that's how you f- like even even the Italy England game it was inevitable almost we all sensed that this was, this was coming I think everyone has their fears about Ireland France um, and then you just like, I don't know how long this is going to go on for how much worse it's going to get over the next few weeks uh, you would imagine it will get worse before it gets better um, so yeah there is there is that danger and then you're, you're pushing everything on to next season I think it, in that event that it does continue to get worse you'll probably see competitions awarding a nil all draws and, and that's the only way to not make it completely back up um, obviously the two Italian teams in the Pro 14 are, are North Italy as well so that makes it even trickier um, so yeah we, we don't really know but 
let's hope some of the games can be played, like two games being played this weekend in Six Nations, ideally at this stage. <laughs> I mean, it seems a bit late to call them off at, at this juncture. Um, but it would be an absolute mess, wouldn't it, if, the, if it keeps going like this. Um, yeah, just don't know. Let's chat about those two games, which I think a lot of people have only sort of got one eye on, really, in light of what's been going on over the last couple of weeks. But as we were mentioning on the members pod with Eddie O'Sullivan during the week, Murray, they'll have a they'll play a large role in determining where uh, this or sorry the direction in which this championship goes, albeit it might be later in the year. Um, Scotland and France, particularly a France win, will will certainly uh, determine likely determine the the overall winner of the Six Nations. Bernard, do you see anything in Scotland, or have you seen anything in Scotland over the course of the tournament so far that would suggest that? They've made any of the type of progress that they have been sort of searching for now for the last three or so years under Gregor Townsend. Yeah, I think they'll beat France um, this weekend. That's a huge start. Yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I think they, uh, I think France will slip up, um, and I think Scotland have a better defensive system in place. Um, they're less fragile defensively. Ironically, their attack is probably not as fluid as, as it was or as dangerous. But uh, I think. That's going to be. Uh, I think for Italy. Or sorry, they were very poor against Italy. Scotland were, but the pressure they were under in that game was absolutely immense. Because I mean, um, the heat that was coming on Gregor Towns and the heat that was coming on the players, and it was just a game they needed to they needed to get over and win. But I, I think they'll bounce back from that. Um, and at Murrayfield, I think I think they'll take France. Not that they're a better team than France, but I just think France will will crack. I mean, you know, it's so hard to get a grand slam. It's so hard to be so consistent over five games. And even though there's been huge developments in in the way France play and there's confidence, etc., um, and they're more resilient, um, I think they will slip up this week, but still win the championship. So, um, yeah, it's like they're obviously not favourites. Uh, France are favourites, but I do think Scotland have enough in them to to beat them. It still feels like there's a bit of pressure on, on Gregor Townsend, but it is impressive that they've managed through that kind of Finn Russell situation and kept the group very much together. Yeah, like look, the performance is actually like the performance against Ireland was pretty good, right? You know, very close to getting the yeah. draw. Uh, the performance against England, you know, they were they were well in the game. You know, England didn't pull away from. I know the conditions you could say brought dragged both teams down, but in theory, those conditions should have suited England better I mean, because they're a more powerful side. And um, you know, Scotland were right. There, they went to Italy, weren't obviously as impressive as you would like to be, but um, I think they've got a big performance in them. And Tenzin, he's a clever coach. Yeah. He's had a lot of evidence now to study and come up with a really specific game plan, which he's, he's good at doing. Yeah, and that's massive. I mean, you could say England got caught in the hop a little bit the first day. Wales, to a certain extent, well, Wales probably should have won that game. You know, when you look at the, the moments that are important in it. Um, but, uh, you know, as, uh, as Murray said, Townsend now knows exactly how France are going to play, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure they can find holes in it. You know, it's still a very, it's still very early days in that system. Um, and while they've had great success out of it in both their kicking game and their um, their defence in particular, there is ways uh, to test it. And until those players get tested in a variety of different ways, you can't really have confidence it's going to be foolproof. And uh, so I do, I do expect them to unlock France a couple of times, and um, you know, maybe just the pressure. France going there as favourites now and we don't know how that young team will handle that I think the Six Nations organisers are probably hoping for a French win and no, then that it. Ireland match is played next again and they get yeah. that Grand Slam Steeler Championship and then you have that sense of uh, like a final outcome obviously 
even with a couple of games to be to play down the line, it would be ideal for Six Nations if they can just give that trophy in and we're done. Closure. Uh, England-Wales then, Murray. How do you see that one going? Yeah, what a brilliant match. And again, because of the stuff that's going on this week, even in the UK media, it hasn't really been addressed all that much. I think Wales are in a difficult position going to Twickenham for, for this game. They're obviously trying to develop their, their style of play. They're offloading more than they did under Gatland. They're trying to play with the wit. Um, there's a couple of key personnel changes where maybe guys are still settling into it. You think of Tompkins coming in for Jonathan Davies, a, a really key essential defender particularly. They've missed him. Um, and, and brilliant going forward too. He ties it all together. And Tompkins has shown his ability but also shown that... Yeah, it's tougher at test level, you know, making those tackles, teams trying to expose you. So I think they're still on a bit of a journey and, and it would, for me, be a, a big stretch for them to go to Twickenham um, and beat this England team who were obviously so impressive against Ireland. I think they'll be, in hindsight, frustrated with themselves, disappointed with themselves that they didn't keep that foot down on the pedal. Like, it's hard to play perfectly for eight, <coughs> 80 minutes, excuse me. But they... They missed an opportunity there against Ireland to to get a bonus point, I think, um, and be even more dominant in it. You know, credit to Ireland, they they hung in and and battled back a little bit. But we saw in that first half how good England can be when they're when they're at that peak. I mean, physically, guys like Maratoje, Tuilagi, obviously making such an impact on the gain line. Again, Ireland probably didn't help themselves in that regard. Um, and then the the ingenuity of some of the stuff they do in the back line with. Obviously, their 10-12 combination, two really good playmakers daily at fullback with his ability to kick or even the threat of his kick as well. Um, and lethal, like lethal Johnny May out, out wide, who's just brilliant to watch. His development as a player has been extraordinary, really. So uh, I can't see how England don't win this one at home. Even the way it's worked out with Makovunapola, which is a bizarre story, but it almost makes the decision easier. I think Eddie Jones probably wouldn't have actually picked him even because... Marder's solid and Genge has been so explosive and niggly and aggressive off the bench. So, yeah, England look to me like they've, you know, they had that wave of obviously disappointment and, and the wobble in, in Paris after the World Cup, but it looks like they're coming to, to a head again. Do Wales face a similar challenge to Ireland, Bernard, going there in that they are in a very transitional phase. They're trying to do something different and... As Ireland found to their detriment, if you stick too rigidly to your attempt to change, you can very easily come unstuck in London. Like, should Wales revert to something resembling type or should they stick to what they're trying to do under Piva? It's going to be such an interesting, I suppose, case study of Pivak's mentality. You know, is he going to be a slave to how he wants to play, even though it's not going to work? Um, in for this game and he's going to say oh long term development I actually think Wales having lost now two in a row um, the pressure will come on him and it already has uh, and you know I would imagine they will try and I suppose streamline their, their game plan a little bit because I don't, I just don't see them being good enough at it yet to be able to really challenge England the way they want to um, and if you do that you're going to lose a lot of energy confidence I'm sure confidence is low already having obviously you know lost Ireland and, and lost to France um, and there's murmurings of you know maybe a little bit of discontent in the squad around you know it's not the same as when Warren was there and that's that's natural after whatever Warren had 10 years with you know with a, a nucleus of the same coaching staff it was you know an unbelievable amount of stability and um you know, it will take a little bit of time, but I certainly don't think you can 
he can get around. He can get around them, but um, I, I think it's it's full gold, fool's gold to a certain extent. And I'd be just really interested to see how they set up. And uh, you know, Stephen Jones is a very smart operator. But if you look at Scarlets over the last three years, they very rarely kind of changed how they want to play based on the opposition. Uh, and you know, there's, there's there's a common, there's a there's a strong and sound fundamentals in that. And that you know. We, we do what we do and let the other stop it but um, I think if you're going into a, a car crash you know you put your seatbelt on and, and uh, I, I just don't think I think they're going into a car crash this weekend and if they if they don't change and, and make it a little bit safer for themselves it could be it could be another hammer blow to confidence again it's the advantage of learning yeah. from a, a pool of games exactly like not to drag up old wounds but the Irish the Ireland one is such an interesting and perfect example for Wales because as Johnny Sexton has said since they tried to get to that space early in their possession. They tried to do it early in the game. It didn't work. You know, the prime example is when James Ryan makes a link pass to Sexton. Larmer f- flashes a really good pass wide to Peter Manny and himself and, and Stockdale botch it. They, the knock-on comes from Stockdale where there was a bit of an opportunity and an opening and that would have given Ireland that flood of confidence. It would have put a little doubt in England's mind. Instead, Ireland botched it, but then they kept trying to do it and we saw the results of it. It was overwhelming when they got caught behind the game. Like yeah, that. but it's really important, like people, say, they listen to Murray and, and fellas go on, they look back at the match and they don't see 10 examples of, of that. It only takes one or two examples when you try it and you don't execute to actually give the opposition more confidence and for fellas to, to second guess in attack and actually when it, when it is on to go, they don't go. Um, or they delay it for a second, or someone someone runs a bad line. The whole thing can break apart really quickly. So you only need like kind of two examples where it doesn't go to plan, and that changes the mindset of a team who are not a hundred percent sure of how it all works. And uh, that's obviously what Ireland are at, and that's what I think still Wales to a certain extent will be at that. Particularly, you know, there's there's question marks around who's going to play ten. Um, so it's just it's a small little moments that can actually hijack the whole game plan and, and set, a, set a doubt into you and obviously give the opposition, I suppose, confidence and energy. Yeah, it only takes a couple of minutes to put a kibosh yeah. on a full 80. You're <laughs> leaning towards Scotland in the France game. Bernard, Murray, Scotland or France? I'll go France, I'll go France. Both of you going with England? Yeah, yeah. So Murray, you had a great piece on this during the week and it is one of the major talking points in rugby at the moment, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. What is more important, um, eyeballs or financial figures? Well, it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one going to make millions and millions off potentially going behind a paywall, but the the former, in my opinion, particularly a sport like rugby, which... Like the Six Nations, we can see it now. Obviously, now this Six Nations is not a great example. We see it every single year, and I'm I'm aware of it every single year how people aren't even aware of Pro 14, Heineken Champions Cup, whatever it is, even November Tests to a, to a degree. But when the Six Nations comes, it's a massive shop window. Everyone's interested. My family are venturing opinions on Johnny Sex, and my friends who haven't got any interest in rugby at other times of the year are, are massively interested in meeting up with people to watch the games. Um, and I think you you close yourself off to that. You close yourself off to the person who's maybe kind of on the borderline of becoming a fan, of really engaging with the sport, potentially them and their children playing the, the game. Um, and you go behind a paywall. And, and as as we wrote, had on the, the piece during the week, like cricket's a good example. And I think, like they're obviously not completely identical sports, but there is a bit of a, 
similarity in, in the class side of it as well. You, you, I think you go behind a paywall and people think, all right, Roby's not for me. It's it's on whatever, BT or Sky. I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not really interested. Um, and I think you lose out on the potential growth of the game, which is is needed. I don't think rugby's ever going to be what football, for example, is. That's obviously completely unrealistic. It's just the nature of it. But I certainly think it can grow beyond where it is at the moment. And I think a move like this, even if it is only a what, two, three-year deal, probably three or four even, um, I think it can just be a, a big setback. So there are lot, lots of different strands, and that's what the piece was about. We were trying to go through each one of them. Obviously, there's unions who, in their eyes, are cash-strapped and, and need that money they would feel they could use that extra finance to grow the game in different ways, to have better programs, to have um, better engagement with people on the ground. So they're both sides to it. But if I'm leaning towards one, it's certainly I'd rather that everyone can watch these games on free to air. Yeah, there's an argument, surely, that uh, if the unions and federations are earning more cash, that you can invest it back into the game and so on. But Bernard, as Murray alluded to there, like... My interpretation of this would be that the Six Nations is probably the only stable in the rugby calendar in what is a niche sport that goes fully mainstream in Ireland and probably most of the European countries uh, in any given year. If you move that to Sky Sports or BT Sport or even to a streaming platform, which we might discuss in a minute, you probably lose the sense of national anticipation for a game when you're not seeing an ad for it after the 6-1 news. Like, you can have all the newspaper coverage, coverage on the 42 and other websites in the world, but ultimately if people aren't being exposed to it on terrestrial television, it is going to f- fall by the wayside to some extent, surely. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's live TV, you know, is, is, the, is the key, I think. Um you know, people say, "Oh, we get we watch the highlights after." That's not the same. You're only going to watch the highlights if you're actually really passionate about the game. Like, you know, there's no rugby in my family um, whatsoever. Very little actually sport. But like, we used to watch Five Nations. You know, on a Saturday, even though like I I played Ga, but um, because it was a big event and it was on it was on telly and the whole family sit down and watch it and you know you learnt you know you supported your country against other countries and you could sense the history and the and the occasion around it and um even like people in my primary school would have been the same who'd never saw rugby and they'd be talking about it on a Monday, you know, when I was in ten or eleven, you know, and I knew I was going to be going to school to, where I'd play rugby or whatever. But there was other people who 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 watched it and then obviously I suppose the early days of the Heining Cup, you know, it it kind of branched out into non traditional areas to a certain extent. And now it's in those areas. Like I I just like I, think it's, I think it's going to probably happen, right? Um, I think it's a really, a really bad move for, for the game. And I also, I know, you know, we're saying, oh, some of the unions are cash-strapped, but how badly cash-strapped are they? I mean, at the end of the day, they're national government bodies. Their their role is to is to manage the development of the game. And you can be sure <clears throat> that there's not, like, the RFU have more than enough money to, to develop the game, as it is, without any um, CCV money. Um you know, the Welsh Rugby Union have a choice. They can, if they're that stuck for money, they can remortgage the Principality Stadium and get a lump sum and, and you know, and, and pay it off and have a couple of extra concerts a year. Like, it, the way it's been sold is we've no choice in this. The choice was, when you took on that money up front, you lost control over the destiny of the of the, the cash cow of the game. You know, we all hear this stuff about, you know, um, the World Cup every four years pays for 
tier one or tier two and tier three development, which is brilliant. I mean, you know, and, and they probably need more money. But like, there's already there's already situations where th- things have changed in terms of season planning, etc., to try and fund you know those tier two and, and tier three, three countries. And, and uh, I think they probably need more of it. But they're not going to get anything from this. This is basically the the richest nations in, in the world basically carving up more cash. And the private equity guys getting their their slice of it, you know. And people say, "Oh, these guys are brilliant with money." Yeah, they're brilliant with money. They're, they're not brilliant with the game. They haven't proven they haven't proven that they're experts in in growing a game. And uh, you can be sure that their KPIs, um, the people involved in investing in this and and the strategists, it's not going to be around playing numbers. It's not going to be around popularity of the game. It's going to be around how much buying do they get for the book, how much return on investment do they get for their shareholders or or their investors and. I just think it's 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 horrendous. It's 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 really like you have to be strong about it because and then again, it's I do think it'll happen. Um, and in three or four years' time, I mean, look at Formula One. I used to actually have an interest in Formula One because I saw it. I, I don't have a clue. Uh, you know, I know there's Ferrari still there. I don't have a clue. Um, Lewis Hamilton is successful because you see him on the British uh, BBC Sports Personality of the Year. But like, I don't watch or read. I've no interest anymore because it's completely off my radar. And I love all sports, but you know, and I'll watch sports that are. You know they're available. You know next week Cheltenham's on whatever I know ITV or Channel Four, and and you'll watch that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and lots of your mates will, and you'll chat about it. And it goes behind the like I lost interest in Premier Premier League. You know when when uh, went behind the paywall, and I won't lose interest in Six Nations, but uh, you know uh, that's because I'm passionate about it. But people will. Well, yeah, people will lose interest, and also new people won't gain an interest. Is a massive problem. Like you mentioned, losing interest in sports there. Formula One, Murray and I were actually chatting about that earlier. Like we used to both get up in the in the mornings and watch Grand Prix. Like I used to do with my father and genuinely even the like watching the Netflix uh, documentary series on Formula One quite recently. I didn't really have a clue who most of the drivers were like Ricardo and Hamilton Grand. Like the rest of them, I was like, oh, who's this guy? Um, and I, I think a, a good example as well is is boxing, which if you look at Katie Taylor when she won Olympic gold in 2012 it was watched by over a million people in Ireland she is literally a national sporting icon I cover her fights and cover her career professional career fairly relentlessly on the 42 she gets probably more media coverage in newspapers than any uh, individual Irish athlete and yet still if I was to ask any of my friends who who's Katie Taylor fighting next or when is she fighting next they'd be like I don't have a clue like people they might even know she, they might even know she's still fighting. Like honestly, it's it's that's how that's how bad it's got because she's mm. been fighting exclusively on yeah. Sky Sports uh, throughout the duration of her professional career. And while Sky Sports, like there is such thing as a sort of a Sky Sports exposure as well, because you've got that running uh, machine that is twenty four hour news, and like to an extent, people will have that on in the background in an, in an office or in a college campus or even in their living room, but. Ultimately, like, firstly, not everyone will have it. Secondly, if you don't have actual Sky Sports, then what you're promoting on Sky Sports News, you won't care about. You know what I mean? At least with the Six Nations being on terrestrial TV, you know, like, you can build your week around that. You know, WhatsApp groups or even just speaking to people in work, what are your plans for the game? Like, I suppose people's plans for the game, if it's on Sky Sports or BT, is literally just to go to the pub or, you know, have go to somebody's house who has it. But it's like, it's going to be massively to the detriment of the exposure of a sport, which could actually do with more exposure, not less of it. Yeah, just on that, obviously, 
you know, people will go to the pub or go to to watching their mates, but you're less likely to do that with your kids, your wife. You know, it becomes less of a family thing. Um, and and that's for me. That's you know, and then those even though those kids never play, at least you know they they understand the sport. They know that. Um, they build a bit of an interest and passion in it and they maybe become fans and like you could spend you could spend uh, 20 million a year on on whatever you know 100 more development officers but if they're going into places and they're talking about a sport that no one really knows about you know they'll, they'll, they'll go out and do a PE class or whatever but the likelihood of that really becoming of interest because as kids well, certainly as a kid for me I looked up to things like you know, I could see on TV and when the sports that were on TV were cooler and, um, you know, you wanted to play in the front of the big crowds, which you saw on TV, etc. Because like we're in, like where I was from, there was no local stadium. There was no big games on, maybe county championship in Dr. Cullen Park, you know, one summer, one Sunday in the summer. But like there wasn't regular big games, whereas maybe for Dublin kids, they, the parents can bring them to the RDS or they can bring them to Crow Park or, um, or whatever. But like, I just think that for whatever money they say they're going to put into development officers and community programs um the game should be able to fund enough of that as it is like we're not in a bad place you know? no the, the thing get, is they, sorry, they, they know they know exactly what they're signing up here there's numerous case studies from the, let's go back to the cricket one 2005 the ash series which was unbelievably exciting watched by a peak audience of 8.4 8.5 million the same year the ecb the english cricket board they sign up at sky and go behind a paywall like the next time this series is played it's under a million at some stages i think in 2015 there were um, there were less than 500,000 watching one of the Ashes series. Last year, they put the, they gave, Sky gave uh, Channel 4, or they obviously paid for it, the rights to the World Cup final. I think there was 5.5 million watching on, on Channel 4. That's what you get. But in the intervening 14 years, cricket, while making a lot of money from Sky, the participation numbers have dropped, dropped drastically. I, I don't have them to hand, but it's it's a clear example for rugby of what can happen. And I definitely think that would be the, the case. The Heineken Cup in rugby is a, a pertinent example. You went from those kind of early days, everyone watching RTE, without that monster would not be what it is today. It would not, because everyone got caught up in that. Even Leinster, obviously they didn't win a, a tournament before it went behind the, the paywall, but we all got caught up in it. That Right now, so many people who are involved in the game, watching the game, that's when they fell in love with it. And the, the example, again, is there in the numbers. 2006, say Leinster's quarterfinal, 255,000 watching RT. The next year, they're in the quarterfinal again and, and just 47,000 are watching. So you've lost a massive audience. And again, potentially people are playing the game. Formula One, the figures are there. They Like CBC made billions from it. Um, and everyone else got rich off that. But again, the viewership numbers drastically fell away. So it's that's what's going to happen. And the participation numbers are going to fall off as well if you, if you do this, especially long term. But like, do the unions really give a shit? Like, how many examples do we have in rugby of like the old traditional boys being happy with what they have? Like eight or ten unions making any financial gain and the game just never growing. So, yeah, it would be, it would be really sad indictment I think of, of that lack of willingness to try and grow it out from where it is but is the game not grown is the game not grown as it is exactly yeah it is isn't it think about is where it? it is now versus where it was in yeah. even like 1999 exactly. 2000 so like you have the whole monster phenomenon that comes along on terrestrial TV on yeah. RT a massive part of this as well by the way and why there are people in probably Carlo in Leash in Offaly who support Munster and not Leinster isn't only because they felt that Munster was a more relatable rural rugby representative it's because Munster were winning 
they were winning in Europe against big English teams, big French teams, and Irish people, and all people who follow sport like to see one of and their teams winning. And you were able to you see, see it. it yeah. And you could see it, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I, so that, sorry, my question um, was, I, I kind of feel the game is growing. You know, it's more popular than, than ever. Okay, I think, in, I think the English Premiership has been tarnished by the Saracens thing, the championship funding. So it's not a good year for them. But I think if you go around uh, the clubs and, and the schools in, in England, there's a lot of kids playing playing the game. Um, Wales are obviously having issues um, with at regional level and, and, and they're you know they're short of, of money. Um, Scotland they're probably where they always were. You know what I mean? They never had huge numbers anyway. Um, France the game is actually in a in a pretty healthy state, you look at the amount of people going to watch women's games, playing games. Uh, the top fourteen crowds are, are good, support is good. Ireland, you know, if you get a proper game, you'll get big crowds. Uh, when fans see something that they want to be part of, you you know, you see the likes of, um, you know, Deeney from Wexford and and uh, uh, Hare from from Waterford, and these fellas starting to come through now from non traditional, you know, parts of or the rugby um, pathways and starting to break through. Um, mini rugby's never been as popular. I mean, those clubs have to, um, you know, rent new pitches because many the kids they have playing. So I think the game is is being played at a, 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 a particularly underage, a lot higher um, numbers than before. And you know, players are getting paid, or their salaries, coaches are getting paid. There's no, you know, there's no um, in, in in most of the countries, fellas aren't worried about the paycheck because the, the union's going to go bankrupt. Like we weren't in a very bad financial state. We, the, you know, only certain unions have millions in the bank, but a lot of that's down. The only reason the RFU are cost cutting is because they made a, a shambles of redevelopment Twickenham. You know, they overspent massively, so that's caused them. And obviously, the last World Cup didn't go to plan, so their revenues are down. But over a long cycle, you know, the RFU are an incredibly rich nation. So, you know, it's it's like it's like we sold the the family um, silverware prematurely or unnecessarily. And again, it, it comes down to some people in unions coming from business backgrounds and seeing this as uh, a way of of, of them becoming, more, boosting their CV at a corporate level again based on, I increased our revenue by 60%. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, no, if you become a, a CEO of a, of a national governing body, yeah, obviously you have to make sure the books um, are, uh, are right. But there's a lot of other stuff involved. You know, like you know, there's, there's so many corporate companies. If you want to be really corporate, go and be corporate. But if you become a, a decision maker in a, nas- in a national go- or governing body of sport, you need to have a a better mix, I think. And I think at the moment we're just going completely down the the dollar signs and actually forgetting a little bit around and just saying, "Oh yeah, sure, we'll have money now. We can develop the game." But there's more to it than that. The another strand of it is the Irish government and the fact that the Six Nations isn't protected, which has been talked about a lot this week. I don't know how, again, I don't know the inner workings of the government, but how difficult it is to change that. But, like, say the fo- the football team's home and away fixtures in the FIFA and Euro qualifying and the competitions, obviously, are protected. They have to be on, on free to air. The Rugby World Cup is, is protected, and that's absolutely essential. Again, I know the last one didn't go particularly well for Ireland, so maybe that turned off a few prospective fans. But, again, you, you need that exposure. Like, if it seems to me like we're heading towards a situation where I think there's going to be some of that paywall and there's maybe going to be a, a block of fixtures that are free to air, but I think that's a really unsatisfactory conclusion because then you get Scotland, Italy, say, on, on Virgin or RT and like no one wants to watch that. You want to watch your national team and get behind it and get into the tournament that way. So 
yeah, it's 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 going to be costly if they go down that route. Like the Champions Cup saw their error of their ways. Like you talked about the uh, kind of the drop off in interest in that competition. You could do a full podcast on the Champions Cup. There are loads of diehard rugby fans who might not notice the difference between what it is now and what it used to be in the mid to late two thousands. But it's a massively different competition in terms of how it's consumed and how it's perceived as being by fans or prospective fans. Our own producer here, Kev, mentioned that it, he sort of kind of it fell away from him essentially when it went to sky sports and then mm. bt virgin obviously uh got some of the games this season and so did the uh so did channels in channel four Car- yeah, yeah french federate yeah, channels yeah. in other countries but like as much as and virgin i think will have the ulster ulster's quarterfinal in toulouse great right but they also had two games between saracens and ospreys which I couldn't give a Baker's yeah. you-know-what, <laughs> frankly. And I felt, I felt for them. They were in yeah. Monster's pool. But, like, yeah. I, I just wouldn't go out of my way to watch it, is the point. Yeah. And, so. and for Virgin Media, like, I don't know. I don't know how excited they were. I'm sure they were buzzing about doing it. But it's a bit of a pain in the hole doing that match. They got the Leinster. Obviously, they started off with Leinster match, and, and that's great. But if you're going to be getting that two of those fixtures on two of those weekends, with, I'm sure not great viewing numbers then you're kind of even thinking, is it worth me going for this? Which someone like Virgin or RT might with with the kind of lowest ranking Six Nations fixtures. You might get Ireland, Italy maybe, but the rest of them, are they worth your while? One small potential change in direction in all of this, and it's sort of more of um, an overarching potential change, is that like as much as we're sitting here thinking loads of people can't afford Sky Sports and BT or whatever package that uh, you fancy yourself um, and that subsequently rugby or any sport that goes behind that particular paywall might kind of die away in terms of mainstream interest in it. Like the advent of streaming may or may not play a role in this. Like DAZN, who've been doing big things in America, they've been trying to break the American market for the last couple of years using boxing only, really, but they've sort of taken on MMA, baseball, things like that. They're a growing force in America. They're a multi-billion dollar organization who are actually massive in places like Canada, Germany, where they have Premier League rights, Champions League rights. They're launching in Ireland and the UK and globally in May. They're going to try and become a player in all of this. And if we're having this conversation two years down the line, they very well, very well may be a player. They could p- potentially see the Six Nations as being a means of sort of breaching that UK and Irish market. Probably won't be 2022 when we're talking about here, but maybe the deal beyond that. The difference there would be that you're not paying sort of like a massive monthly fee it might only be sort of a fiver or a tenner a month and the whole sporting paradigm could change or the way sport is consumed may well change with this advent of of streaming we've seen like amazon sort of dip their toes in it with a couple of premier league games and things like that so it might be a very different conversation in a a few years time is the only thing i'll say i don't think that the current system with sky and bt is actually working anymore like their numbers would suggest as much so it could be the, the case that in 2025 or something that you're pressing a button on your phone, the thing is coming up on your TV screen, or if you have a smart TV, it's like changing the channel essentially, and you're watching the Six Nations for a relatively affordable price. You know, like it might be that this is only sort of a short to medium term thing and not permanent. But you'd also make the case that, like, and we were saying it earlier as well, Murray, if it does go behind a paywall at all, it won't come back because yeah. 
you're making then, money at that point how, that you're not yeah. gonna you're not gonna turn your hand up. How to, do you go back from that? Exactly. Like the, the hundreds of millions. I, I think that's very realistic, and I think the unions. Like I remember speaking to Philip Brown, the RFU CEO, about the streaming thing. I mean, he obviously grew up in a time when that was not part of the picture, but he watches his kids and how they consume sport, and it's all on their devices or whatever with the with the smart TV. I, th- I think it is realistic, and the, the money that those companies have is is extraordinary. Like Netflix have obviously changed the the game, even with films with movies now like they're going straight to netflix essentially and um even my mom can put her netflix onto the tv so it's not a challenge for the the slightly older audience either so yeah i think it, it will be part of it and potentially as you say within that kind of short mid-term kind of future particularly like someone like amazon who are a massive company and that outlay isn't quite as large as some of the, the tv broadcasters as well but i guess in the short term it feels like sky certainly or, or bt are the, are the more realistic one in, in this deal anyway certainly does it's going to be an interesting couple of years let's see if we can actually form a government uh, and ask <laughs> yeah. a couple of questions as to why it's not a protected sporting event what else is going on in the world there's a, an email here from rob kenny uh, in berkeley in california he has some very kind words for the podcast which i won't read out because we're just too humble but um, <laughs> he was saying if the Six Nations continues to be disrupted and if you're lacking for topics, I'd be interested in your take on the under-20 team. It seems like they're doing well and playing some nice rugby. Do you see any potential stars and why do the underage teams seem to be able to play with more freedom than the men's team? Brackets or am I off-base off base, Sorry, with this assessment? Bernard, you've been watching the 20s quite a lot and also... Uh, have some plenty of history involved in underage rugby. Do you agree with Rob's? Well, listen, I think <clears throat> if you look at the first two games, they actually they weren't nearly as um, ambitious with the ball as they were against England. Um, so I'd say probably building confidence um, and momentum from from that. From those two first wins, they played some good rugby, but they were the English game was probably the, the most comfortable I saw their forwards with the ball. Um, now I, I look back at the, at the game again. I thought England actually were very poor defensively and they gave them so much time um, and also didn't really hit hard. You know, they were able to stand up in a tackle. It was it was bizarre, actually, for, you know, a, a team who were highly t- highly touted, who, you know, have big physical players. They just didn't seem to be at the races. And, and I'm not trying to take from the Irish performance. I'm just trying to, I suppose, um, explain why we seem to be able to do what we wanted, you know, in, in contact. Um, and I think... Probably they're not scarred, you know. Just maybe uh, <laughs> they they don't know what can go wrong, um, which may sound stupid, but they are less scarred than than seasoned seasoned internationals who who I suppose maybe have a little bit of inbuilt fear around making a, an error um, or or two errors or a drastic mistake. So, they, you know, and and I think Noel McNamara and his coaches, Kieran Campbell, etc., are giving them that license to play, and. Um, you know, I think they're thriving in it. They've created a nice little, a little buzz um, amongst themselves, which they did last year as well. I mean, they seem to be really tight, and I think, you know, it, it's brilliant the way the twenties are becoming. You know, consi- I've been consistent now. The challenge is to go to a World Cup and and, and do something because that's where a lot of the other nations kind of measure themselves. But uh, yeah, you have to take into account like it's a completely different game. It is a different game. You know, the men's senior international. Um, I mean, like the reality is, and this sounds bad, but you know, someone else. Some of those, a lot of those players won't make pro, you know. So the, and the guys playing opposite against won't be pros in three or four years' time. So that does give you more time and space to to play a little bit. Now, you know, 
where we want to get to is where you know the international team can no matter what's in front of them can can kind of play with that freedom but uh, uh yeah so i hope i explain so i think the reality is um maybe less fear because of less scars right in terms of uh not understanding the consequences of stuff so being braver uh but also take into account the quality of the opposition um is is nowhere near as good as they're going to face at the next level up and, mm. and someone will come up and step up and, and handle that but unfortunately some won't yeah and that's why it's so enjoyable to watch every year I love tuning in because there is that naivety in the players it can easily just just as easily implode like we've seen Ireland give up a lot of crazy tries which a senior professional coach would not find acceptable making decisions in attack that a senior coach would think are, are just too risky but that's the that's the joy of it a lot of the rugby that's played wouldn't be realistic say at senior test level it, you just wouldn't be able to do some of the things you're doing. But that's not to say it's not a really important development tool. That's what 20s rugby is. It's great they're winning, absolutely, because, again, it's a, a kind of another layer of confidence for young Irish players who have seen the senior team be successful. They're coming out of school now going, you know, like we could win a Grand Slam. They, they, they saw it in 2018. Then they're winning at 20s level, and it adds another layer to that. But the most important thing is the development of the player and if they're playing with a bit of ambition, if the forwards are using their passing skills, if they're filling out at nine at times, um, using those tip-ons, you saw some lovely examples from the likes of Thomas Clarkson against the English, well, then that's brilliant for their development, as well as learning lessons from the bits where they where they F it up and, and give away a, an easy try. Um, so that's what it is. But it is hugely exciting. That what You know, a Grand Slam last year, uh, on course for that this year, and clearly some players of, of real potential. I agree with Bernard. Unfortunately, the reality is they won't all play for Ireland in senior rugby but there's certainly one or two Thomas O'Hearn I think who you mentioned earlier on is a great example of a, of a guy who in Munster extremely excited about his mentality his mindset but also his his athletic potential is clear he's 6 foot 9 he's able to pick and go and, and he scored two tries off that gets so low to the ground with, with dynamism as well as having the footballing skills I mean he played fullback and wing up until he was 17 you can see with the aerial takes he scored a try for Shannon this year in, in the UBL or the Energy uh, All-Ireland sorry um, and it, he, you know, he takes a restart over his head and runs the, the length of the pitch and scores a phenomenal try so really exciting I think Hayden Hyde in the centre has been really good Um and there are a few of them there who you look at them as athletes and think, yeah, he can step it on up to the next level because, you know, it's a very, very different... Even senior provincial rugby is different to 20s. I think Nigel Carlin said it recently, actually. You know, when he was in charge of the team, he, he thought it was... And it is a good barometer of their potential. Uh, he thought it was a, a, a clear sign that this guy's going to be brilliant for his province. He realises now that it's just a very different ball game. And in a way, that's unfortunate that professional rugby doesn't have that... Uh, same kind of fr- fr- joie de vivre or, or naivety in, in play but that's the reality of it but um, certainly a very enjoyable rugby to watch and if people aren't tuning in I'd definitely advise them to and there's a team in Pro 14 who have a zebra like yeah. they don't they don't give a crap where the ball ends up uh, and, <laughs> and Brad's in fairness just says listen go out and play um, but the problem is you don't get results you know so it's a um, it's a dangerous philosophy to have <laughs> which is terrible I don't, uh, but obviously you, could, you know the other argument is um, you know tr- or Benetton designed it and built a skill set up and they were reasonably successful at it but uh, um, I, I do think I do think it's really good for us that those players who are going to come true to become pros are actually getting to test and stretch their skill sets by playing uh, with a bit more freedom, and that is more—it's more likely then when they do go up to pro level if they if they sense an opportunity that they'll 
they pull the trigger, you know. Um, whereas maybe previously, 20s teams were set up in a very structured way and mm. it was meticulous and, you know, a fear of errors. I, I do think that there's been a transition in, in, in this team. And it's obviously coming from the coaches to they're allowed, you know, try things. Yeah, good. that decision-making thing is, is everything. Because in, in Test Rugby, you got to have a, a really clear plan. We're seeing with France, for years they just jouer and it, it doesn't work. When they have a clear plan their ability to make decisions within that framework really tries. And that's what you want. You want a player who's disciplined enough to to stick to what you've agreed on, but also when there's a situation, when a defender makes a bad read or bites in on him, that he has that ability to see the opportunity and, and certainly looks like the, the 20s are being developed that way. Yeah, how much of it, um, a player's progression from that level onwards is determined by the sort of intangibles like uh, decision-making ability, I know like in a few of the provinces they really look for somebody who seems like a natural leader or somebody who's going to be vocal when they get into a senior dressing room. Like for example, I would have friends who played with Alton Delan at Underage in Munster and he was coming up from Kerry, by all accounts, was then a very quiet fella, whereas a lot of the lads in that Munster Underage team would have known each other from playing each other in schools and things like that. And like a friend of mine tells the story about how Delan was this absolute freak of an athlete in terms of like he was in there like chiseled like a Greek statue. He was blowing lads away with carries, hammering lads and tackles. But like there would have been a couple of players who made the grade of Munster ahead of him that were just sort of <laughs> loud or they would have been perceived as being leaders because they might have been like schools captains and things like that. And Delan sort of fell through the net. So in a very long-winded way, like how, what I'm asking is how much of, of their progression might be determined uh, by sort of personality more so than athletic ability? Um, well, just going back to, to that, for, well, I, I had a Leinster under 20s trial uh, 20 years ago and um, we were basically put into teams and, and I was I was ripping the ball off a fella in a mall and I, I noticed he was screaming his own name um, <laughs> and, and basically going, great work. <laughs> great work Joe Bloggs great work Joe Bloggs <laughs> and I knew That's I knew it was genius. Joe Bloggs yeah and then afterwards I only met him the other day actually I hadn't seen him for years and I was like what, what are you sure? and he goes oh one of the club uh, Alicadu said well, if you go to those trials make sure make sure they know your name um, yeah so and it did, didn't work for him he didn't get picked to be honest but uh, no I, I have I heard a, a story and very recently actually of one of these screening days um, and uh, a kid came up from the country, a country club, in a pivotal position, and they um, they want to test his leadership and his kind of ability to take ownership. So they put him in a group with, you know, loads of private school boys who maybe have already played lots of representative stuff. And they said, "Oh, you run the next twenty minutes." And he failed. He, he failed miserably because um, he wasn't coming from an environment. All these lads knew each other. It was already a big step. And he actually got cut. He didn't make the screening process because of it. Now, a couple of injuries happened. He got to get back into the path, pathway. And now he's passed a load of them out because obviously he became more comfortable. So I'd be very skeptical of of that method of of, of screening. Obviously, you got to look at the the, um, the, the character and, and the, I suppose, level of maturity, etc. But I think you have to take into account the exposure they've had um, and like some, and like the pathway is really good and but I've heard some people say oh, we don't miss anything you, they miss loads and it's normal like everyone does it's not a it's not a, fa- it's not a failure of the system yeah. but to, to actually think the day you think that you have missed something or missed somebody um, is a very dangerous day like um, and even I hear lots of stories of fellas who got in the back door and whatever who've now become really good so there's, there's a sign of the fact that 
every system has has its flaws. But uh, yeah, and that ultimate land story like that makes perfect sense to me. I think sometimes as maybe, uh, and I certainly saw this in, in Grenoble and, and Dragons, academy coaches or managers make a decision when a kid is seventeen over another kid, and it takes a, a lot of um, I suppose uh, fortitude or, or or spine to admit two years later that that was a mistake. You know, because you don't want to, they their job is to get people through a funnel up into the senior squad, but then obviously a head coach comes in, and if he can see that that was a mistake, he doesn't care about a mistake. He just wants the the next best kid in. And um, and I'm not saying that's happened in Ireland, but in France and, and Wales, that certainly happened. I I could see examples of that where everybody doubled down on their decisions at 18 all the way till 21, 22, you know, and it's, um, that's not a good way of doing things. We all make mistakes uh, around, you know, selection, recruitment, and some players don't come through at the level that you thought they would, and other players handle rejection and uh, and find another way of, 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 of getting better or develop later. So it's a fascinating um, subject. There's lots of studies on it, but, you know, and all you want, I suppose, the most important thing is you, you take on board as much information as you possibly can and then you use a little bit of gut. Uh, but mistakes are made. Mistakes are made massively. Ulton Lan, you know, Munster would have loved to have him, you know, last year or the year before. Um, and Connacht profited from that. And, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. But and I, and I, can, like, I like the fact there is that character assessment within the screening. But I think you have, it can't be just black and white. You know, um, there's reasons why certain kids are quiet on a day, or um, and there's reasons why certain kids are loud. And you know, it's 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 a it's pretty much putting all of it together. Yeah. Uh, and but also understanding the training age, etc. The operative. And, and trying, it's very hard, but you know, like this kid, this kid's now, you know, he's he's now representing Ireland. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The operative term as well is that they're kids. They're not fully fledged adults, you know. You have to give them a, a, a something. In fairness, sometimes there isn't that uh, you can't afford that sort of couple of years that it might take them to develop as a human being, essentially. But sometimes that development happens, and then there there are late bloomers that make the grade at, at twenty two, twenty three that you've sort of forgotten about. Yeah, you're projecting into the future, and again, yeah. predicting is so hard in any field. And talent ID is fascinating for that reason. Like if the three of us had stints in charge of the Munster Academy, there would have been different players in at, at those different times because it's always going to come down to, in the end, some subjective things where you value this or weigh this more. Now, you can obviously try and get past that by having a a, a systematic kind of view of what, what you're looking for in players, but it's a really tricky task. And, like, everyone develops at different rates, as you say, and, yeah, I think... Just on Munster, um, the academy's been, you know, much maligned over the last few years. I actually do think they're on the verge of discovering a mm. crop of, of, of young players who they can actually build a team around. Um, you know, so I was very impressed. I was, I was down there for the Scarlet's game. You know, Casey handled the conditions really well. I think, you know, Coombs is good. There's Coombs is good. There's Witcherly. There's Hodnett. Um, there's obviously a Hearn. There's, there's suddenly a batch um, who seem ready to step up to to senior rugby. And obviously they've got two high profile, world-class players coming in. So, um, you know, for and for fans, Munster fans who are maybe frustrated, um, obviously haven't qualified for the Champions Cup. I think over the next two or three years, if those players are managed properly, and that's the challenge for them now to, to do as good a job with that talent as Leinster have done with theirs. And um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, we haven't had, we don't have the production line, we don't have the talent. I genuinely believe there's proper talent there, fellas who are passionate about Munster, fellas who have it physically. Um, 
which is great, you know, and now the coaches have to make sure that they transition. And people probably think those things counter each other, the two world-class players and the young crop, but I actually think they work hand-in-hand hand because the young players learn from those world-class players' habits, mentality, the ruthlessness to get to the top. So I think it actually makes sense. Perf- it's perfect timing in a way to, to combine them. Yeah, and also if you throw in all that young group, there's no, less, mm. uh, uh, there's no guarantee they're going to be better. They actually have to fight to get their game time. You know what I mean? So like Tom O'Hearn has to be able to, uh, you know, train really well. Um, whenever he gets 20 minutes off the bench, he needs to actually impress and, and, and perform rather than just say, oh, look, you got loads of talent. There you go. That's why Leinster are, 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 are so consistent, I think, is the lads know if they've one bad 10-minute block at training, they might play for months. You know what I mean? And, and I think that's a good, it's a good thing for pro athletes, uh, or elite athletes, is to really thrive in that competitiveness and, basically um, get something because you earn it and talent's relevant everyone's talented at that level it's just um, having all the other parts that actually make the difference here's one last question then so for today uh, super question from Barry Lampkin it's actually long similar enough lines so uh, he says during February and March schools rugby gets a huge amount of coverage but the elephant in the room is that most of the boys who play Leinster schools rugby and I'd add probably to that, uh, that it's the same in most provinces, never play again after finishing school. Bernard has been involved with provincial clubs like Tullow, so I'm sure he's seen the issues with rural players going away to college after underage rugby and not playing club. But can he see any solution to the disconnect between schools and clubs that could keep these guys playing and build the amateur game? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think a lot of them play post-school, a lot of them play 20s. You know, uh, uh, some of the Dublin clubs have got two twenties teams um, at the moment, so that's that's sixty bodies really. You know, uh, realistically, who are coming from school into the clubs. The challenge seems to be post twenties. Um, they don't seem to do enough in that period of two years to actually, I suppose, ingrain them to be club men or club women, and uh, that's the, that's the worry. I understand a lot of fellas they focus on being a pro. The dream is is uh, taken away and they lose interest but I think if you can if you can really get them into the club and out of that out of that 20s into so like when I was 19 I played Macquarie Cup for Lansdowne and suddenly I was on the third B's right for the Cups uh, and then I played third A's thirds and like we might play on a Tuesday night and a few, of the, a few of the players were obviously working they'd buy me a few points I was a student you know and I um, I got it. I became ingrained in the club, and then obviously I got an opportunity to go to Lantarf, but I became ingrained in that, and I stayed there for my whole career bar when I was in sale. And uh, so, like that's, I think that's the key is to is to get them out of their bubble of just playing with their their uh, peers in terms of age, and try and get them actually being part of the fabric of a club. And we're not doing that really well, and that's that's the reason now the clubs who used to have third C's D's only are only feeling three teams because the literally adult numbers are, are dropping. So it's, you know, you've got a massive amount of mini rugby kids, massive amount of people playing youth schools, lots lots playing 20s, but after that, um, they just seem to, to fall away. Uh, barred a very committed few, but I think the biggest thing is, um, as human beings, we, we love attachment, we love to be part of something. Um, and probably in school, you're very attached to your school. 20s, two years maybe isn't enough to really... I suppose grab strong roots in, in a club but I think you know that, that's that's the key is to get them involved in the club and no matter they keep playing or not or just supporters or volunteers or coaches 
um, that's the challenge and it's not like it's, it's, not, it's difficult New Zealand I spoke to a, a Kiwi a Kiwi journalist the other day uh, and there's a massive review of, of rugby in New Zealand across the board because the clubs are, are really struggling and uh, players aren't playing on and like for the Kiwis like you know Kiwis played for 35, 36 and it was a big part of their life and now they've got other things to do socially whereas the club used to be the the Mecca on a Saturday night, everyone went to the club. Um, and I know we're all, we're competing with lots of different things, but we're still very primal in that we like to be attached to something, we like to be part of a group, a family. Um, and that's the challenge for clubs is to, is to do whatever they need to do to attract them to feeling an attachment to the club. Yeah. I just add very briefly, it should be fun first and foremost, particularly in junior rugby, like which I've played and I've had, one of the most enjoyable times ever playing for Munster Juniors where the coaches, not they were going on the piss, but the fun element was the primary thing. There was no one roaring at you. Like, there's nothing worse than turn up on Tuesday, Thursday in the pissing rain to play junior rugby and some lads absolutely balling you out of it. Like, you don't want to, you don't want to tur- turn up again the next day. So I think clubs need to have that focus and maybe sometimes forget about, okay, we want to get into the IAL. There's nothing wrong with being a junior club and having a really engaged core group of players, a couple of teams, really good social vibe around it. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I think everyone's so ambitious and that's great. Everyone wants to play good rugby, but like make fun the, the primary thing. Absolutely. Who said there was nothing to talk about this week? Lads, huh? <laughs> Thank you very much, gentlemen. Bernard, we'll catch you very soon. Thanks so many for coming in. Thank you. And Murray, I'll chat to you, well, probably in a few minutes, but uh, <laughs> more podcasts in our future, no doubt. Come here, all of our listeners and uh, particularly all of the 42 members in the WhatsApp group who sent your brilliant questions this week. Thanks so much. Apologies if I didn't get to a couple of those questions. Shane had a really good one actually on uh, the potential new kicking laws and things like that. We might get to that in the next one. But until that next one, uh, mind yourselves and take it. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> it is coming on! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, oh, oh!